Our scripture passage for this morning is Matthew 18, verse 15. Hear now the reading of God's word. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's go to our God in prayer. Heavenly Father, this subject that we are taking up this week and next is not entirely pleasant to think about. We hope that we will never sin against anyone and we hope that we will not be sinned against. And yet as we see from your son's words today, there is need for us to respond in a godly way that glorifies you when sin happens. So would you be at work? Would you use your word? Use your word to prepare us to respond as Jesus would have us respond. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. When we read the Bible, one of the big dominant themes that we see in Scripture is this ever-present desire on God's part that people would dwell together in unity and that they would dwell together in peace. Uh, We saw that in our readings from the New Testament this morning. We also saw this last week when we sang Psalm 133. Uh, Psalm 133 is this great example of exactly what God desires for his people where the psalmist says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And Paul talks about how important it is for us to walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bonds of peace. So, you know, that's Ephesians 4. Think about this. Paul is telling us that we have to be patient because sometimes we don't feel very patient with each other. Right. The the admonition to be patient only happens in a context where we don't want to do that. It makes sense to encourage somebody who is impatient. You must learn patience. Um, We're supposed to aim at peace. We're supposed to aim at unity. And yet we have a default that doesn't lend that way, does it? Um, First Peter three tells us to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Um, So God's word really paints this. This beautiful vision that God has for his church, doesn't it? And what God envisions is not for all of us to become identical automatons or or copies of each other. God does not envision a church that, uh, that is uniform, but he does envision a church that has unity. He envisions a church that enjoys unity, not necessarily uniformity. So what that means is that we all come into this place with different distinct uh, interests. Uh, We have different gifts. We have different hobbies. We have different things that we love. We have some of us have things that we love that others don't love at all. Uh, Some of us have different tastes. Some of us have different preferences. But here's what God has done. He has designed that his church would attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the son of God. And so the thing that unites us and the thing that God envisions uniting his church 
is not our preferences or our tastes or our styles or our personalities and so on. What does he say that our unity is in? He expects this unity in his church to happen through the ministry of the word as he builds up the church. And that's what he's saying through Paul. So we're all very different, but we all hear the same word. Um, I was struck by this just a few weeks ago while I was preaching and somebody came up to me after the service and told me they heard a different sermon than I preached. Like they didn't tell me that, but what they described to me was, was not the sermon I, I thought I preached. And yet God spoke directly to their heart. This is somebody with a very different life situation than me. And the thing that struck me so much was we're all different. We come into the same room. We hear the same word and God feeds us all differently, doesn't he? Um, What we also know is that in no way this side of the cross does Jesus expect for the church to be perfect. Now, I know that's a cliche almost to say that the church isn't perfect, but it's not. And and it's his intention that that this side of the resurrection, that the church, he knows that it's not going to be perfect. And so that's why we have this verse here this morning where where Jesus says, if your brother sins against you. In other words, Jesus wants, he wants you to be prepared because someday you're going to be sinned against. And it's going to be a professing believer who does it. And in the moment when you are sinned against, you may be in, in shock, right? I, I, thought, I thought that the church was different. I thought Christians would be different. And, and it could be that, that you thought the church was meant to be a place of peace and harmony. And here you are in this person who says they're a Christian, totally sinned against you. And it wasn't a small sin. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it wasn't just a little nudging offense, but it was a real sin. And that could be hard on us, right? The, that moment where you realize heaven isn't here yet. That moment when you realize that all the flaws are showing and, and we're, we're still really messed up. They let sinners into this building. Like, and, and then you, you like know, we know that, that, that we're sinners. We know that you have to be a, a, a sinner in order to be a member of the church. But that moment where you feel it in your bones. Wow, there really are sinners here. And, and actually, they only let sinners join the church. You know, it's all abstract until sin actually happens, and especially it happens to us. And Jesus is a realist. He expects sin to happen. He expects sin to happen between his people. It is built into what Jesus has in mind for his vision of the church. But in that moment when someone sins against us, Jesus is very concerned what happens next. He's very concerned about what happens next because We were made to glorify God with all of our lives, but we can respond badly to conflict and we can respond very badly to trouble. And in doing that, we can actually obscure the glory of God through the way that we act. We have a duty to respond in a way that shines a light on the glory and the grace of God and how we respond. Jesus is concerned about what happens next. Before we look really closely at the passage, let me just say something. The moment when we are actually sinned against is a very dangerous moment. Um, It's a dangerous moment for the one who sins, but it's a dangerous moment for the one who sinned against too. 
And it's dangerous because if we respond badly, we can actually instigate more conflict than was originally even there. And sometimes conflict becomes more about how badly we handled trouble and how we handled sin than actually the sin that started it all to begin with. And so Jesus sees this exact problem. This is actually why Jesus gives this instruction this week and next, because he sees how our bad response takes a sin and amplifies it out and makes it even worse than it was before. If we don't respond in a godly way, Jesus is giving this instruction because he's realistic about his church and because he loves his church. He wants to address this exact problem today and next week. And so I want us to take it slow. I want us to take it slow. Uh, not usually, now you guys might think we're really crawling slowly through the book of Matthew. Well, today it's just one verse, so we are definitely crawling. Um, and even in just this one verse, though, I want you to see there are three questions here that we should be able to answer in the moment when we've been sinned against and when we've decided that we need to do something. There are three questions that we need to ask. And so just for this week, I want to look at those three questions and sort of lay the groundwork as we prepare for a confrontation with somebody. And so the first is, is this a professing believer? Am I dealing with someone who is a professing believer? Second, is this a sin? These are so basic, right? But we actually have to ask them. Is this a believer? Is this a sin? And then third, is this a sin against me? Three important questions. First, we find ourselves in conflict. And when we find ourselves in conflict, we need to ask this very important question. Who am I dealing with? Is this person a professing believer in Christ? The way Jesus puts it here, he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him. So he is, why does Jesus only instruct his disciples to do this with brothers and sisters in Christ? You know, why doesn't he just tell his disciples that this is how we should handle all conflict? Why doesn't he tell us that this is the way we're supposed to deal with anyone who sins against us? Well, on the one level, you can think very practically. Think for a moment. You know, this week's passage says that if someone sins against us and they're a brother, we should go to them personally. Okay, I, I suppose we can do that with a person who's an unbeliever, right? In theory, we can do that. In fact, we probably should. It's a wise thing to do. Um, we can even do the second thing Jesus mentions, right? And he, we'll see this more next week. And, and that's to take one or two others with us. You know, maybe you've had work conflict that needed to be squared away. And the way you handled that was might have some overlap with this, right? You go with a supervisor. You go with somebody else to talk to this person. Um, so worldly people can do some of this already. Some of this makes sense whether the person is a Christian or not. But then notice what Jesus says after that. He says, then if he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. And so this is the part where it really doesn't make sense to practice this with somebody who's not a believer, Right? Because this is, the place, this is the place where you realize that this is not how you deal with sin between believers and unbelievers. Because unbelievers don't care what you say about them to the church, right? They do not care what we say about them to the church. And they might not even care what the church might even say to them, right? That would be like if you were a kid and you told on someone to someone else's parents, right? To the parent that's not their parent, <laughs> 
right? Confronting an unbeliever, even if we do it gently, even if we do it lovingly, is generally unproductive or counterproductive if we take it to the church, if you take it to the next level. And so this is a process where Jesus assumes that you are talking to somebody who is a believer. And Jesus assumes that a humble and spiritually sensitive brother or sister in Christ will not only be willing to hear you out, but is actually going to welcome hearing you out in a way that an unbeliever is not going to. In fact, the assumption is that if the person you're confronting is not willing ultimately to be confronted with their sin, ultimately he actually will tell us to treat this person as an unbeliever. Now, that gets us ahead of ourselves. So I'm going to pull back from that and come back to this question again. The, the idea here is that we treat this person as a brother. We presume that they are a brother in keeping with their profession. Now, all of this passage today is from the perspective of the person who is sinned against. So Jesus is saying, Jesus is not talking about going to people and confessing your sin. Jesus is talking about almost the harder thing, relatively speaking, of telling someone else they sinned against you. That's what Jesus is talking about here. But let me just insert something that I think is important. Someday you will sin. Someday. Okay. You will sin against another believer even. Now, I hope you don't, but it is very hard for me to imagine any of us making it through this life without sinning against each other. But someday you will sin, and it may be that this person that you sinned against comes to you, and they say, you've sinned against me. I need you to know that you have sinned against me. And if that happens to you, first of all, what I hope you do is I hope you praise God. Because this person is treating you like a Christian, right? This person is treating you like a Christian when they come to you and say you've sinned against them. So instead of being offended the moment that someone confronts you about your sin, instead, take it to heart and take it as a blessing. I'm being treated like a believer, right? This person has gathered up all the godly courage they have and they came to me and they came to me personally and they didn't go to somebody else And they did this thing that's scary because it's not easy and it's not pleasant to confront someone, is it? So thank God if someone does that because they're treating you like a Christian. Second of all, if you are the person who gets confronted, know this. The hope and the prayer of Jesus himself is not that you will defend yourself, excuse yourself, or pardon yourself. The hope of Jesus is that you will fold like a house of cards. He wants you to fold like David when Nathan confronted him. And Nathan said to him, you are the man. And what did David do? He folded. He said, I sinned. Uh, Fold like Peter when he wept bitterly after realizing that he sinned against Jesus. Fold like a repentant person who loves God and hates his sin and hates when when he sees his sin. That is my prayer for you. It is my prayer for all of us. We will sin, but will we admit our sin or will we defend ourselves? We will sin, but will we confess with David, I have sinned? That is the question. I just wanted to add that. And the reason I want to add that is because this whole passage is not actually about us when we're confronted. It's about us when we need to confront. Uh, But I just wanted to add that perspective here. I think it's an important perspective. 
the worst thing we can do when someone confronts us is trot out our excuses and shift into defense attorney mode, which is very natural. It is easy. And the defense attorney mode runs even when no one confronts us, right? He is, he is up here. Uh, he is working full time and he is always on the ball, the defense attorney inside of our hearts and in our, and in our brains, right? And so when someone confronts us, it's very natural to say, ah, I was ready for this. <laughs> and we come right out and we give our reasons. Here's why we should not shift into that defense attorney mode. It's because if we do that, Jesus says, this person who confronted you has not gained a brother. This person who confronted you has not gained a brother. And that is the most heartbreaking result when we're confronted. That is the worst possible outcome in a scenario like Jesus is talking about here. Praise God if this happens to you. Praise God if someone loves you enough to confront you and treat you like a Christian. When Jesus tells us that this is how we should handle sin between ourselves and a brother or sister in Christ, Jesus is recognizing, recognizing something very profound about sin and, and its effects. The reason we have to address it is that sin damages our relationship with others in the family of God. Jesus says it has to be addressed. He, he doesn't say that it's, it's an optional thing. See, this takes us back to the motivation why we want to take this approach with fellow Christians specifically. Jesus says, because this is a family matter and the family is hurt by unaddressed sin. Because look at verse 15. Notice this verse 15 contains the the seed and the motivation for all of this. What's the reason you do all of this? To gain a brother. To gain a brother. And I don't think I have to say, or a sister, right? (laughs) Um, to gain a brother or sister in Christ. One of the things John Chrysostom points out in his, in his commentary uh, on this passage in the gospel, he points this out. He says, there's a reason why Jesus uses this language of gaining a brother here. And he says, the reason is because until the brother or sister has been regained, there has been a loss. The sin has caused a loss. The enmity that sin creates is creates a loss for both parties. We are losing out as long as we have unaddressed sin between us. We are the losers. And Chrysostom says that this language of Jesus is that in this language Jesus is recognizing here that both the one and the other were losers before this, the one of his brother and the other of his own salvation. Right? Everything we're going to look at this week and next is aimed at this one target, this one goal, gaining a brother or sister. That is the goal. That is the plan. That is, that is the target, gaining back a brother, back into fellowship with Christ, also back into the family of God. But that requires the hard work of addressing the sin. Now, this brings us to the second question Jesus gives us here, which is, is this a sin? Is this a sin? Uh, Immediately in verse 15, after telling us that this is an issue between brothers, Jesus leads off with this conditional. It's a conditional statement. Um, And if this condition here hasn't been met, then this lesson isn't for you. Here's the conditional. If your brother sins against you. 
if your brother sins against you. So in logic, we call this an if-then statement. If this, in this case, if you've been sinned against by a brother or sister, then you need the second part of the clause. If you've been sinned against, then the rest of this is for you. Um, If you've been sinned against by a brother or sister in Christ, then you need to know what to do. Notice that that what Jesus is doing here is he is not inviting a hunt for faults. Jesus is not inviting a hunt for faults in the other person. Jesus is not giving us an invitation. He is not giving us permission to be hypercritical of other people. Uh, He is not, even though he uses this word faults right here, he says, go and tell him his fault. He's talking about a sin. He's not talking about some flaw that we see in the other person uh, where we uh, just got to deal with it because this other person's got a problem. And well, who better to help them with this problem than me? He's not inviting that because Jesus is talking about dealing with actual sin. If your brother sins against you, he didn't say if your brother has uh, you know, clicks his, uh, clicks his tongue when he talks or makes weird noises or something like that. He's not talking about that. He's talking about sin here. We have to begin by discerning whether we have actually been sinned against. You know, sometimes people will make us angry. Uh, people will frustrate us, even people in the church. Um, and the issue, though, is that we just have differences. We just have differences with people. We don't have the same taste as other people. We see things differently than other people. But no sin has been committed. We just don't see eye to eye. All right? Uh, let me give you an example of what this might look like. Actually, this is one that the kids will uh, relate to. When, uh, when my children were very young, I learned when they were truly angry. And when they were truly angry was when they said, you can't come to my birthday. <laughs> if... It's like saying you're dead to me. <laughs> it's just like that. And when you hear a child say it as a parent, you just, oh my goodness. <laughs> we, gotta, we have hard stuff going on here. You can't come to my birthday. And of course, they always get to come to the birthday. So, But, but here, here's an example. And this is one that if you have ever said you can't come to my birthday, then you'll relate to. Let's say I have a birthday party at my house. It's the party of the century The downside of coming to my parties is you have to listen to my music. And once you hear my musical taste, you won't love me anymore. But let's say we let's say you come. uh, Let's say let's say I have a birthday party of the century at my house. But you don't get an invitation and you thought you were going to and maybe you thought you should have. It may be inconsiderate. It may make you feel left out. But it also isn't a sin. Right. It hurt your feelings. But it isn't a sin. Sometimes we just have interpersonal problems that are offenses, but they're not sins. Now, if we had our feelings hurt, that doesn't mean that we should avoid talking about it. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't address it when other people hurt our feelings. We should just, we could seek to patch things up. We need to have a mutual understanding. We want to restore that bond of fellowship. But that situation is not what Jesus is talking about here, right? Um, you wouldn't ultimately treat someone as a Pharisee or a tax collector because they didn't invite you to their birthday. And, 
Um, not run across that in all of my review of Presbytery Records minutes yet of, of any, anybody being put under church discipline for not inviting someone to their, their birthday party. Jesus is talking about when someone sins against you, right? Where, where you could say, this thing is a sin according to scripture. They, they gossiped about me. They lied about me. They, they stole from me. Those are all sins, right? Whatever it might be, uh, I could show you in God's word. I'm not just mad. I'm not just angry. I was actually sinned against. This was wrong, right? We're talking about identifiable sins. And if it wasn't a sin, Jesus isn't talking about it here. It doesn't mean there are places in scripture that talk about how we need to resolve issues, but this is about sin. See, remember this also, this is important. All sins are offenses, but not all offenses are necessarily sins. And what that means is that it's not always necessary to address every offense as it arises. Uh, Case in point, Proverbs 19.11 Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Right? The author is not saying we should ignore sin. He's not saying that it is a glorious thing to overlook sin. But if someone has offended us, sin or no sin, we have an opportunity to glorify God by choosing to overlook the offense. This is always easier said than done. (laughs) It's always easier said than done. It takes great godliness and humility to be hurt by someone and to intentionally choose to overlook it. But I will say this. Sometimes we choose to overlook an offense and we fail at it. (laughs) We fail at the choice to overlook sin because what can sometimes happen is we say, I'm going to overlook a sin. I'm going to overlook an offense. But really later we end up pulling it out, right? And I suspect, I suspect there are probably husband, most husbands and wives can rem- remember some time where something, was, something happened, a decision was made, I will forgive you, and then later on, remember when you did this. Um, that is not overlooking an offense. If it gets pulled out later, if, it, if we're saving a sin or if we're saving an offense for a rainy day and we decide that we're going to use it when it's most convenient to us, then we have not overlooked an offense. It is a glory to overlook an offense. It is not a glory to store away a weapon for later. And that's what that is. So if we're going to overlook an offense, we must overlook it. Do not save it for a rainy day. Really put it away. Really put it away. And here's the thing. If you find yourself bringing it out later, it's a sign that you haven't overlooked it and you need to address it. And if it's a sin, then you need to address it the way that Matthew 18 deals with it here. There is the sin of giving offense, right? It's committing the sin that has created the offense. But there's also the sin of taking offense. What do I mean by that? I've probably, you've probably heard me say this before. Often we take offense at things that we shouldn't take offense at. We can be overly sensitive. We can be insecure. We can be thin-skinned. We can hear something that the other person didn't intend in what they were saying. Sometimes we imagine that the person meant something worse than they actually intended. And in that sense, if we have an opportunity to hear the person in a better light, the Bible says we should. 
Um, our church's confession talks about the ninth commandment. The ninth commandment is about bearing false witness. But one of the things that our catechism actually says is it basically opens it up like an accordion and opens it up to see what else is contained inside of that. And one of the things our confession says is that we should think charitably of others, which means that when we hear something from them, we shouldn't think that it means the worst thing that we could possibly imagine. Um, The ninth commandment says that we should choose to hear the best, not the worst. This is not an easy pattern to get into, right? I think, first of all, most people don't think of themselves as thin-skinned. I've never actually met someone who describes themselves as thin-skinned. Instead, we say things like, I have a strong sense of justice. Or if you're on social media, someone might say, I know a toxic person when I see one, right? This, This talk about toxic people, right? Very few people say, I'm easily offended. I'm very thin-skinned. Nobody thinks of themselves that way. Now, our culture is obsessed with offenses, and it's obsessed with offense-finding, right? But not everything is worthy of confrontation. To give a sort of, a, I think, a, a reasonable example, I had an acquaintance who was once brought under discipline through uh, the HR person at, at work. And it was because uh, he called a lady he was working with a gal, And she was offended at being called a gal. And so he got a visit from the HR department. Okay, like there can be like understandable motivations in that mindset, right? Nobody, if you're you're looking for offense, there's a reason why you're doing that. You don't want to be, you don't want to look like a fool. Nobody wants to be naive. Um, We would rather catch someone being mean to us than let them get away with it, right? We're afraid. What if we let them get away with it this time? And then they just do it every time. But in our paranoia, we may be sinning by hearing something that wasn't intended, or at least by hearing something that we aren't sure was intended. So we decide to default to hearing the worst thing instead of hearing what we hope they meant. Not all offenses are sins. Sometimes true things are said and done and they offend, but they aren't sins. To use the most virtuous example I can possibly think of, Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about the cross And he says this, that the cross is an offense to people. The cross is an offense to people. So does that mean that the cross is sinful because it's an offense to people? Well, of course not. No, of course not. The sin is in the person who is offended by the good thing. The cross is a beautiful, good, actually, it's an ugly good thing. (laughs) The cross is an ugly good thing, but it's also an offense. We have to know that just because we are offended by something does not mean that we are right. Or that the other person is in the wrong. We, we live in an age that glories in taking offense. And so if we as Christians can overlook an offense, do you know what that makes us? That makes us weird. That makes us weird. And in a city that prides itself on being weird, we're weirder than the weird city. We're, and we'll stand out. We will stand out like a sore thumb in the best possible way. That a sore thumb can stand out. Um, but let's say something happens and you can't do that, right? Maybe, the, maybe it was a serious offense. Maybe it was an offense that was also a sin, right? And it was serious enough that you can't just overlook it. You have to deal with it. Or, or maybe, this, maybe what happened was so hurtful that it is actually damaging the relationship you have with this person. You have trouble looking at the person. You don't want to talk to the person. You find yourself avoiding this person. You find yourself angry or bitter with them. 
and you don't even know why anymore. You don't even know why you steer clear of them. You just do. Your efforts to put away your offense have not succeeded. And, and sometimes in our heart, we think we're willing to overlook the offense. We might be willing to do that. We might want to do that. But maybe we notice that we've not been successful in overlooking it. Maybe we say we have chosen to overlook it, but we realize we've got to confront it. We've got to deal with it. And it's, again, it's not just someone hurt my feelings, but it's actually a sin. These are questions we need to struggle with, though. Is this thing I'm considering confronting this person over actually a sin? The third thing we need to ask is this. Is it a sin against me? Is it a sin against me? What do I mean? Well, look at the language of Jesus here. He says, if your brother has sinned against you, not against someone else. If your brother has sinned against you. And so this is about you and how you deal with what was done to you. Um. Does that mean that no one can ever intercede for someone else if help is necessary? No. I can think of extreme cases of violence, assault, where I would not require the person to meet with the person who sinned against them. I can think of extreme situations where I would not say, well, you've got to, you've got to meet them face to face. You've got to talk to them face to face. Because in those cases, what took place is also a crime. And is beyond what Jesus is talking about here in its gravity. Uh, and I, I, have, I feel like I need to say that because if you've been assaulted, if you have been abused, I would not insist that you have to speak with your attacker before seeking help, for example. Please do not. Please get help. And that, that, that can often be very dangerous, actually, to, to bring the attacker into the same room as the person who they hurt to begin with. So I want to say that because I don't want there to be a misunderstanding. But as far as ordinary circumstances go, if someone else tells me someone sinned against them, and this is something that can happen with pastors, right? Someone comes to you and says, you know, I was sinned against by this person. Will you come and talk to, me, to them with me? And often, actually, usually my first question is, have you spoken to them directly about this? And oftentimes the answer is no, because we don't want to go alone. We don't want to be face to face with the person. We want to go straight to step two. Which again, preview for next week, right? But oftentimes, the, the, the answer has to be talk to them personally. Let them know what happened. And if it goes poorly, I'm happy to come with you. Some personality types are ready to take up another person's cause. And this is the person that needs to hear this question, right? If you are sort of a, I'm going to call it a crusader. If you're the crusader type, you see that something wrong happened. You see that something happened to someone else. You find out about it. And you want to take up that other person's cause. Um, I remember a ruling elder telling me some time back that, you know, often we are willing to overlook something that's done to us, but we will fight to the hilt on behalf of someone else. And we will be far more offended on behalf of someone else when in reality the matter would already be over if it was up to that person. Um, some people take up the harms of others like a crusade. Uh, it feels right. It feels virtuous. You're defending truth. You're defending goodness, right? The problem is this. The person who has been sinned against is the only one in the situation who can offer forgiveness to the offender. Think about the problem this creates. If I'm the crusader on behalf of someone else, 
and I confront that person's sin and then the person says, I'm really sorry. If I'm the crusader, how could I ever decide since I'm playing the prosecutor to let the sin against someone else I care about actually go? They're going to get away with it. But here's the issue. Whereas a personal offense would already be over and dealt with and forgiven and put away, the crusader may keep a sin alive for a long time. Right? Because you can't let it go. This was a sin. This was serious. But we can't be the one to forgive. And so we don't. And see, this is part of the reason why Jesus says we need to be sure this is a sin that was committed against us. We need to be confronting the person who actually committed the sin. And we're talking about, the, about personal offenses that need to be handled personally. Don't get brought into someone else's drama, if I could put it in kind of a, sort of a, a cheesy sort of way. You get involved in other people's drama, you never get, a, get to escape from it. It's like a whirlpool. Um, now, something else, though, fits under this question, and that's the issue of public sins. And here's what I mean. Public sins are often dealt with differently than what we're talking about here and very differently than the process Jesus is talking about in this passage. Um, If you or I become aware of something that took place in a way that hasn't been possible to keep close between the offender and the offended, it sometimes becomes important for the sake of the purity and peace of the gospel for the church to deal with public sins in a public way. I'll give you an example of this. In Scripture, in Galatians chapter 2, Paul relates in a letter to the church in Galatia about a situation where the Apostle Peter publicly sinned. How did he publicly sin? He went and, and shied away from the Gentiles, and he sat with the Jews, and he ignored the Gentiles. And Paul makes the decision to publicly confront him in front of everybody, And then he actually makes the decision to put it in a letter that will heretofore forever be distributed amongst the churches of Jesus Christ for everyone to always know what Peter did. Uh, It doesn't get more public than that, to be honest. Um, And he told, told Paul or he told Peter in front of everyone what his sin was. And so one of the lessons from this is that when someone publicly teaches or someone sins in public, there may be no single individual who's been sinned against, a single individual who's supposed to bring be the one to go to that person. And in that case, a public response may be called for. Here's another example that is not New Testament related, but some, something a little more modern. If someone wrote a book that contained false teaching, right? What Jesus is, is saying here does not require me to personally reach out to Kenneth Copeland before I say from the pulpit that he's a false teacher, right? Someone shouldn't come to me after the service and say, have you sent a letter to Kenneth Copeland before you decided to say his name from the pulpit? No, because we're talking about public evil, public sins, public mistreatment of God's word. We sometimes see well-meaning individuals uh, who will say, have you talked to this person first before you wrote a blog or you wrote a negative Amazon review or, or before you said, said something on a, on a podcast? This is all a misapplication of Matthew 18. I am not personally sinned against by false teaching. 
the whole church is sinned against. Jesus is sinned against. And, and therefore, like we see with Paul, a public response is often called for when the sin is public. In other words, Jesus is not talking about public responses to public sins in Matthew 18. He's talking about personal sins against us as individuals. Now get ready because this is the hardest landing you're ever going to get from one of my sermons. You know, oftentimes I find a way to wrap it up. I find a way to close the, the knot and tie it up with a bow. But we've got another week here. We've got another week in this passage before we, we, before we were able to really get to the conclusion I think Jesus has for us. Think of it as a cliffhanger, all right? Let's say what happened was done by a brother or sister in Christ. Let's say it was really a sin. And let's say it actually was a sin committed against us. What do we do about that? How do we respond? When we come back next week, we will look at that to be continued so that we can continue to hear more clearly what God's word has to say. In the meantime, let's do this. Just in the coming week, let's be asking God to help us know the difference between sins and offenses. Let's ask God to help us to deal with offenses as they arise, but also to deal with sins as they arise and to deal with them in ways that make sense when it comes to the unity of the peace of the church of Jesus Christ. And in that day when we have to confront or when we need to be confronted, let's pray that God would help us to respond with humility and grace. Uh, Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that even now you would lay the groundwork in our own lives and in our own hearts so that if we should need to confront another, we ask that you would help us to do so for the right reasons, that you would help us to do so out of a desire to have a relationship with a brother or sister restored. Give us a love for one another that is not rooted in selfishness and sin but in a love for them and in a love for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.